Hello, everybody. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm uh, Rob Kennedy, just making sure my name's right. And we're here with Adam, formerly of Tab. How's it going? Doing all right, Rob. Good morning. You are presently of? Uh, Velocity. Velocity. So this is the Adam's story from Tab to Velocity. <laughs> uh, so first of all, um, this is one of those revisited episodes. So uh, for some more context, because we're not going to go too much into Tab uh, and how Adam built it, uh, check out that old episode. Uh, but for now, it's about a year ago, so you have to go back in the back catalog. But Adam, just very briefly, remind everybody what Tab did. Does, so does, um, does. Tab was Canada's leader in mobile payments for hospitality. So the Uber payment experience in restaurants, wherein you'd go into the restaurant, tell your server you're paying with Tab, and then you can just get up and go. Mm -hmm. And we were in 100 restaurants spread across Toronto and Montreal. Right, cool. So, um, uh, so when we last left our heroes, you had just opened Montreal. You'd mm -hmm. set up a bunch of restaurants in Montreal. And uh, I think you were doing pretty well. You had, like, I remember I used it in at the Irish Embassy. It was pretty cool, worked well. Uh, what happened? So you had just launched a city. This was about what a year ago, mm -hmm. a, year uh, and a little ago. over a year ago. Yeah. yeah, in the winter of 2015. Okay. So take us from there. You opened Montreal. You launched in Montreal, and Montreal next for you. How did that go? Um, Montreal went well. So the reason why we launched Montreal is not because we thought Montreal would necessarily be the best city, mm -hmm. um, but it was the city we can launch the most, the cheapest, and the most effective. Um, to be honest with you, we actually tried to launch Chicago first, um, wherein I was the Chicago person. And uh, I met with a lot of the top operators in Chicago, and we would say we're in, at that time, it was probably 50 of the best restaurants in Toronto. They'd say, what's Toronto? Really? Um, yeah. And, really? Because uh, I thought Toronto food, Toronto, you know. Something. Yeah, that's not so much. Not really the case in the U.S. <laughs> um, we're just a fun place north of Buffalo to them. Um, and so um, they also said like the timing didn't work, but for whatever reason, we couldn't get people to say yes quick enough. Um, but we also were unable to, we didn't have the resources to hire a team in that market. And we really needed to hire a team to really effectively launch it. Um, so then we tried Montreal. It took me about a, a week to be in Montreal. I met with a lot of the top operators there. And we would say that we're in the Chase, Gusto and Taroni. And they're just like, oh, I love those places. We're in for sure. Um, and so we launched Montreal with essentially just me there for three weeks in about 20-ish of the best restaurants in that city, um, dedicated a little bit of money towards marketing, got some press. Um, and then funny enough, once we launched Montreal, our Toronto operations grew substantially as well. Because hmm. um, Montreal is kind of known as the dining capital of Canada, whether that be right or wrong, um, there are some excellent restaurants in Montreal that Toronto restaurants certainly look to, like hmm. um, Joe Beef and Park, to name two. Um, so when we can come to Toronto and tell some restaurants that didn't say yes to us at the time that we're now in Joe Beef and Park, that that carried a lot of weight with them, and and our Toronto operations suddenly became a little bit more legitimized as well. So everything was going great. Um, You're still bootstrapped. Uh, no, we raised a seed round. Yeah. Uh, we raised a seed. We ultimately raised um, collectively um, around a million dollars, and we were operational for a little less than two years. Okay. Um, so not a lot of money, um, especially for a company that. 
um, is buying hardware for restaurants, is launching in two markets. We would, I would say that we are not a capital efficient company and just companies in our space are not capital efficient companies. Plus you're, you're like, I mean, I think the most expensive thing would be like marketing to consumers so they even knew what was going marketing on. Marketing you know? to consumers is very expensive, expensive and also hiring engineers is also very expensive. Yes. Um, and so um, everything was going great. Um, and then we realized, I guess, um, well before we launched in Montreal that there was a really, really unique opportunity in which um, we shouldn't just, we, we didn't need to just be a payments company. Um, reservations throughout the world um, were, there was an opportunity opening up in reservations um, in which you know everyone kind of thinks that OpenTable is this massive dominant global player where actually OpenTable has market leadership in only four countries, Canada, the US, the UK, and Japan. And in every single one of those countries, um, they're losing market share. In Toronto and Montreal alone, um, less than 50% of the top restaurants that we work with aren't even on OpenTable. They're with a company called Bookended that was recently acquired by YP, um, Yellow Pages. And uh, you see some of those trends in the US as well. You see some of those trends in the UK. And then moreover, when OpenTable got acquired by Priceline, um, you just saw that OpenTable wasn't innovating in the way that they needed to, um, whether it be on um, business model, whether it be on product, whether it be on operations, they were slowing down and there was an opportunity for other companies to step in. Um, so um, around in the back, in the background, while we were also launching Montreal, we are building a reservation product. Um, we didn't build a full-blown table management app, so that's the app that restaurants have to manage their tables like in restaurants. Um, but what we did was we built a really lightweight consumer side thing in which you're able to book tables um, within our consumer app, and then the restaurant would get a text message or phone call, um, text message or email actually, about the guest information and put it into their app. Mm. Um, and it's very um, MVP of the yeah writing. yeah absolutely um, and so that was really effective um, in that it provided more value to both restaurants and consumers like payments one thing that we realized about payments and I think every company realized about payments is one um, the margins on payments are just so slim it's crazy um, that you need to move so much volume to make any sort of money. And um, despite the fact that the smartphone as a wallet paradigm is certainly becoming a reality, Mobile payments are still a very, very early adopter in niche behavior. Mm -hmm. um, like we can tell you, our, like I'm not going to tell you who our users are, but our users are people that live and work, live in the tech community in Toronto and Montreal, or just people that are, are just general early adopters that like to try new stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that is not enough to create a sustainable business in payments. Um, payments requires you to move hundreds of millions of dollars rather than hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so um, we realized that more value can be achieved on the, both the consumer side and merchant side in addition to more re potential revenue can be generated if we get into, got into reservations. And how would the restaurants compensate you for that? Would um, they pay you for the system or per reservation? Or So it would be a per cover fee. Okay. Um, so we made a little bit more revenue from there. Um, and, uh, and everything was going great, like our numbers were or definitely up and to the right. Once we launched our reservation product, I can tell you that investor interest, so all the while, at, right after and during our Montreal launch, we were also trying to raise more capital so we can expand to new markets, grow our team, expand our product. Um, and investor interest became a lot more significant and, um, and uh, everything was going great. We actually launched a text-based concierge. I know text was really hot, and we <laughs> found it very hot, mm -hmm. um, in which you can text to get a table at any of our restaurants, and we f fulfilled that, that request. 
Um, and when you say you fulfilled it, somebody on your team was answering those tasks? Yeah, it may have been AI, it may have been a bot, it may have been an assistant, it may have been me, but someone was fulfilling those requests. But how would that work? So it's like, I, for table, for reservation specifically? Yes. So it'd be like, give me a table tonight for whatever, and then if it was a you, you would call up the restaurant or text or something? The uh, we develop very strong relationships with our restaurants in which we know um, when tables would be available. Um, when and if tables would be available and how um, to effectively book the tables. Um, some required a call into the restaurant, um, but most did not. Uh, we kind of created rules, like a thought rule process for if you request at this time and this size party, will it be fulfilled at this table? Hmm. Um, sorry, at this time mm -hmm. um, and at this restaurant. Hmm. Um, so everything was great um, in that we were growing. Um, we were growing our product. We were growing our revenue. Uh, we were growing our merchants. We were growing our users. Um, but but uh, before you say but, yeah, some more questions about the reservation yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I think it's like when you you start a company, you had a sort of vision in mind. You're like mm -hmm. payments, man. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, okay, the revenues there are okay. We should we need to push a lot more through it. Then you're like, at at what point are you like? I think now I need to add this product to grow. Like, yeah. It's, is it because you had the revenue realization and that's what was the catalyst um, to do that? Or you just revenue, like usage, um, revenue, like, so revenue, consumer usage, um, value, feedback, data, like everything just screamed towards. Is it, a, was it like offer a full suite and reservations happen to be the first thing or was it pointing to reservations particularly? Um, you know, we believed that um, both Tab and uh, and now my employer, Velocity, mm -hmm. um, has ha have and had the vision to be the leader in mobile software for hospitality. Okay. So to be that person, there's really, in my view, three pillars. Um, there's the end, the middle, and the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we were really good at the end, which was payments. Um, but the most important part is is reservations, right. um, and and it gets puts butts in the seats. It gets people in the door. Yeah. It ensures that the customer is able to walk into that restaurant, and the restaurant their their biggest concern is whether they're going to get people in. Mm. Um, and um, and so you know that just came patently obvious. And at at some point we needed to work on it. So why not then and yeah. now? Yeah. Um, so we did, and uh, and not to get too far into it, but I think that there's a, an incredible opportunity in the middle in which when you marry payments and reservations, you're able to get a significant amount of data about guests. And right now, I would say that guest notes are probably the most underutilized feature in hospitality. Um, Rob is vegetarian, or Rob likes this Barolo when he get, orders this meal. Um, that's very underutilized. And, um, and we think there's an incredible opportunity. We've always thought there's an incredible opportunity to marry both the end and the middle, it, and in the beginning to um, really provide a, a significantly higher level of hospitality in the middle. Hmm. Um, and that's what ultimately we were trying to work on with Tab and um, we're now working on a Velocity. And then one other question about that was the, um, when you're um, building that product, yes, you said that OpenTable did not like, for example, uh, wasn't like dominant in the entire world, but I mean, it was a pretty like, well entrenched thing, at least for me, I'm a technology guy, so maybe I'm a bad example, but I think it was pretty well entrenched. Like OpenTable had a lot of relationships, they had a lot of like restaurants on the on the go. Given that their offering, or I guess the people that Yellow Pages bought, were slightly more full service than texting, 
Mm -hmm. uh, was it a was it a, a stretch to then go to the restaurant and say, guys, we're doing this reservation thing? It'll come in as a text message. It's not quite integrated with your table management system. It's just texting. Were they like, you know, but there's this open table thing or yellow, whatever the, what was the company the Yellow Pages bought? Uh, bookend. Uh, bookend. Well, well, the issue with open table, um, the issue, not issue per se, but the issue in our specific space is that um, at the time, and kind of still now, is Bookend and Yellow Pages had a very poor consumer experience. And, um, and any restaurant that made the switch was losing marketing and saw that they weren't getting as many really? butts in the seats because of that switch. Huh. And ultimately they made that switch because it's a cheaper product. Um, so we were able to say, hey, we're an additional marketing channel to get people in and we're a, a best in class for consumer experience. For those that uh, book with OpenTable, we're actually cheaper than OpenTable. So we can put butts in the seats that ostensibly spend a little bit more money because we were able to show some data on our user spend. Um, so we're going to get you uh, people that are going to spend more money at a cheaper pr price. Will you do this? Um, and a lot of restaurants said yes. Um, so that was that was pretty effective. And the one last thing I'll ask you, and then we can carry on, is the sort of messaging style communication that uh, yeah. your users had. How did they know to like? There's two parts to this question. How yeah. did they know to even do that? Yeah. So like, we had. Uh, all of our users have it with a verified phone number. Yeah. And when we launched the feature, uh, we sent a message to all those that had their phone number verified saying, excuse me, uh, hey, it's Katie, who is our omnipotent, or our, our, our everyone is Katie. Katie is, <laughs> is whomever you want Katie to be. Um, hey, it's Katie. Um, uh, you can text me anytime to book a reservation. Katie from Tab, you can text me any time to book a reservation. Why don't you give it a try? Where do you want to go this weekend? Hmm. Um, and that and that uh, kickstarted uh, the behavior that we were trying to cultivate. And how did you? I guess the question I really wanted to ask then is, you know, these kinds of things are hip at the moment. These yeah. bots and conversational, yeah. whatever commerce. Um, how did that work? Because I feel like people sort of it's kind of an opaque black box. Yeah, you have to know what to say to the person in the right kind of way to get the right kind of thing. And if yeah. the answer is, do you have something tonight at eight for two people at this restaurant? You know, at whatever Portland variety, they're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> then it's like, okay, how about like, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, With yeah, a graphical yeah. user interface, you can pick and touch yeah. and see and yeah, do yeah, things. Yeah. How, how did just in the brief time that you had it, how did you find, how did you find it? Were people getting it? Were you able to respond? Was it irritating because you had to like have 39 texts to be able to fulfill anything? Uh, it required a lot of overhead to manage the text message concierge, mm -hmm. um, but it was extremely effective. Like we probably had reservations going on for about eight to 10 weeks. Um, prior to launching that feature. And um, in the first week of launching that feature, we booked more covers in the, in the, the total eight to 10 weeks that we booked on reservations proper. Hmm. Um, so there was a resounding, uh, yes, this is something we want. And yes, this is something that's really important. Um, and yes, um, this may or may not be the future. The, the way that we looked at it is we kind of said, like, what is the perfect use case for getting a table at a restaurant? And, and we thought the perfect use case would be getting a table and paying at a restaurant. And we thought the perfect use case would be not having to navigate an app and check if this table is available, but you should just text in, in SMS, um, say, hey, can I get a table for four at Taroni? You get the text back, sure thing, looking into that. They say, yes. Here's your table. Would you like me to send you a calendar invite? Calendar invite sent. You show up at Taroni. They know that you're paying with Tab. Um, you never even have to interact with the app. The tab is automatically created. At the end of your meal, you're presented with an itemized receipt and a thanks for paying with tab card, and you just get up and go. You know, that's the magical user experience that we said, like, this is the way it should be. Let's build for that. 
Um, and we did, and uh, and it was pretty great for a little bit. So then, yeah, <laughs> the phone started to ring. Yeah, the phone started to ring when um, throughout this this building process. You're referring to the acquisition, yeah, correct? Um, so if that's where you were going to go next, yeah. So um, we, um, as I said, we're all the while we're trying to raise more capital, and um, you know, I took that founder trip to San Francisco to try and raise more capital, and I had a couple. Um, hours in between VC meetings, and I thought, you know what? Why don't Why don't I meet with some potential acquirers? Um, so because they were calling, um, there was some expressed just... interest. Um, there was some inbound interest, and I also created some outbound interest. Um, and so I took those initial meetings, and they were they were fine. It was it was fun to to meet people at amazing companies. Um, and then we realized um, shortly after that trip that we it was unlikely that we were going to be able to raise more capital. Um, so you know, any when any company is in that kind of position, it's either uh, raise more capital, get bought, or die. And we really didn't want the third to happen. Um, so uh, after we, we there was no point in time in which we stopped trying to raise capital, um, but we we certainly put a for sale sign on our back. Um, and what was the difficulty? Why were investors in, in the States, kind of like, eh. Yeah, for sure. So um, two big reasons. Uh, let's know. say spring. So this time, around this time last okay. year. So pre-everyone um, freaking out about money. Uh, yeah. yeah. There were still big yeah. rounds. There okay. were still big, crazy rounds. Um, so we our, our usage wasn't um, demonstrable. Uh, we, had, we, had strong, um, we had strong metrics, but they were up and to the right. Um, but they weren't crazy up and to the right. We weren't um, we weren't killing it, whatever that means. Uh, we were growing. Uh, we knew why we were growing. We knew how to grow more, um, and we needed a lot of money to do so. Mm -hmm. And um, and ultimately, you know, we we operated in a highly competitive market in which um, the barriers to entry were um, five smart people, a Stripe account, and hustling around the street signing up restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, and in highly competitive markets, um, amount of capital raised creates a barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. um, so whereas we had previously raised around a million dollars, and we're, let's just say we're seeking around in the two to five million dollar range, we did have competitors with similar metrics and similar traction and operating in a similar amount of cities with the same amount of restaurants that were raising um, 15 to 20 million dollars. So very naturally, when you're talking to VCs, they, they only want to back the, the number one. Um, venture returns are only um, justified when you have runaway successes, home runs, grand slams, whatever the analogy you want to make. Um, and very naturally, because we were seeking less capital than these l ostensibly like larger players, we put ourselves in position in which we're, hey, we're not number one. We're, we may not even be number two. We're three or four. So if these guys can execute the heck out of this, um, what's the outcome for three and four? Um, what's the outcome for winning Canada? What's the outcome for winning two Canadian cities and maybe three? Maybe they got bought for $20, 30000000 million. And that's if a lot of things really, really go right. Yeah. And for a venture investor, um, that's just not worth their time, energy, effort, and money. Um, and that's what a lot of people told us. They, um, they gave you that feedback. Yeah. They said, like, listen, we love what you're doing, um, but, but like, this can't, this, 
with the amount that you're raising and with the market conditions as they are and with your revenue as it is and which i.e we were not profitable or sustainable based on our own revenue we would have to be sustainable on venture capital yes um it, it just doesn't make sense for us to invest in you um so then we saw, looked to get um angel capital or strategic capital from people in hospitality for a little bit and uh and um let's just say that their, their appetite for investing in an earlier stage startup wasn't as as uh, significant as venture venture capitalists okay. um so that's that's a number of the reasons why we were unable to raise the round mm -hmm. um and uh and then we looked looked for an acquisition so these things when did they start sniffing around when did people start uh, we had our initial um we had our uh first initial meetings phone calls whatever it may be um actually sorry i shouldn't say that um People were calling us and emailing us um, well before we sought out an acquisition. Mm -hmm. um, people were asking us to have a quick call to see where we were at um, in, I want to say, fall 2014. So wow. that would be like six months after we launched. Hey, cool payment company in Toronto did a really great job on product. They're in a lot of top restaurants. Let's have an initial conversation with these guys. And, you know, like founder being like, like, are, they tell ask you are are you guys looking to be to sell and I'm just like well for the right price yeah. like <laughs> uh, I guess like I'll sign whatever for the right price you yeah. know yeah. Um, and nothing materialized then it was too early um, but certainly we 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 sought out those conversations and initiated a lot of them in earnest um, in spring of last year and and you said that like without naming names the the buckets of people who were interested are, were varied it yeah. wasn't just like yeah, yeah, yeah. so know, i actually Trump. forgot one when we were talking about it before okay. so it was it was ended up being three public companies three unicorns and two series a companies that we were talking to so throughout the acquisition the yeah absolutely yeah. and how is it like you know having gone through a bit of that myself not the actual acquiring part you know when a, when a big company calls you up mm -hmm. with a big brand they're like, hey, you know, we're kind of interested. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? Yeah, of course. And you're um, kind of like, oh my God, I'm about to be bought by fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah it's very flattering. And especially when they're, so um, the company that acquired us was a series A company. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, let's just say this, the valuations tend to be a lot higher when it's a public company calling <laughs> you than a series A company. Mm -hmm. So naturally you get very, very excited um, because, um, Forget, forget the fact that um, this will be an incredible outcome for your company, investors, and teams, but this is gonna have a material impact on your life um, in which like, like it, it will simply put, um, but you're going, I was going from a founder that was uh, making very, very, very little. Um, the financial impact would have simply had a material impact on, on my life. So it's tough, it was very difficult to not get extremely excited from someone at a public company saying we are interested um and given the number mm -hmm. i mean there's like three of the i think you said three three and three or something mm -hmm. like that, two three two like that's a lot of noise how distracting is that while you're trying um, to well that's it? the job of a founder yeah um and there's a lot of noise as a founder and you have to entertain all of it and filter the signal from the noise and figure out um how to effectively navigate through those murky waters so um, you know, we we weren't chatting with eight potential acquirers all at the same time. Our for sale process probably lasted about four to five months. So um, we chatted with um, with probably two or three at a given time, um, and it would generally start in the same size. So let's just say the public companies were first, then the unicorns, and then the Series A companies. Um, not 
exactly didn't work out exactly that sure, way, but sure. it worked out somewhat in that manner. And then, how did you? Um, how far did you let them go before you like this isn't a thing, or did they? Was it mainly them saying, "You're"? I see now how it works. Were they looking at you and saying, "We're not ready to get married yet"? Or yeah. Like, so ah, I don't know. So anytime you deal with public companies. Um, it's very so we are let's let's back it up a little bit so when you when a companies are acquired they're acquired for several reasons they're acquired for um the strategic value they hold for that company they're they're acquired for their revenue they're acquired for their market they're acquired for their product they're acquired for their team which is commonly known as an aqua hire um so anytime that you on that kind of that sliding scale that i just mentioned um when it's a strategic um, when it's a strategic acquisition, when it's a revenue acquisition, the valuations tend to be significantly higher. When it's a market um, product or team acquisition, the valuations tend to be a lot lower. Um, let's just say in the single digit millions and below. Mm-hmm. Um, and for public companies that have to listen to public shareholders and have a corp dev team and have a legal team and it's an expensive use of resources, um, sometimes it becomes very difficult to justify using those resources on an aqua hire, in which um, it just doesn't make sense. We were a five-person company at the time to say to m- make a press release saying, "Hey, right. we acquired this small five-person company in Toronto, and right. they're they're moving there and joining our team, and they're all great, and everyone's happy." Right. Um, you know that doesn't really work for public companies, um, or it happens. Yeah. 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 Um, um, but it doesn't happen as often as you think, and, be, and it presents challenges for the uh, the acquiree, i.e., us. Um, so there has to be a really, really strong strategic or product fit for for the potential acquirer. And you know, anytime that you're uh, a large company, let's say a unicorn or public company, you're ultimately thinking, can I build this myself, or or must I buy this? Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose. Those some of those companies certainly said uh, we can build it ourselves, or this team just you know isn't that talented that we need to spend this much money on them. Got it. So uh, so there was a lot of noise, and then and then you, between you saying no, like were you saying no to any of them? Were they like Here, we'll give you fifty dollars and a hat, and you're like, dude, like that's not what I. Uh, no, none of the like no one was presenting offers like that. Okay. Um, it, it never became a matter of um, money. Um, never said like this offer is way too low. This <laughs> offer is way too high. Um, it just there was just not a fit. Um, mm. it, it wasn't a fit for our team. It wasn't our fit for our investors. Um, and um, and and in those situations, there's no like email with all caps and bold saying no. Right. It's kind of like I don't think this is going to work out. Um, and and I think that that's what happened. Um, in a number of different instances. And how did, so you having, like what kind of investment, was it convertible debt or a safe or like what were you our, using for our your invest? Yeah, our, your our, our round, um, our, our round, all of our round was, there was a mix of debt and equity. Okay, and had the debt converted yet or no? Mm, no. Not yet. Okay, so how much did that influence? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, we raised a sufficiently lo- low enough uh, of capital that valuation expectations were directly aligned with um, what potential acquirers sought us out for. Mm. So you know, anytime that you raise capital, um, your investors are going to set you at a valuation, and with 
the amount that you raise and with the whatever your valuation is set at, you lose optionality in a potential acquisition because investors are gonna say, hey, how come you're getting bought by 3 million when we just raised at a valuation for 15 million? Right, right. Um, this, does, this doesn't make sense, the, we're not happy with but this. But you see, like, the, the point of a safe or convertible debt or whatever mm -hmm. um, is to delay that valuation for a future. Yeah. So the, the second you sold or the second you did uh, equity, somebody mm -hmm. had to value the company at yeah. that point. Yeah. Um, would you do that again? Yeah, our rounds, like, oh, dude, like, no, our rounds made sense for okay. the timing. Okay. Um, and as I said, uh, we valued ourselves through whatever investment vehicle we did um, at a sufficiently appropriate amount um, to get acquired and to have acquiring interest. Um, How and did obviously, you figure that and out? Obviously, that's not the goal of no. a of whenever you raise a round. Um, there's not really any figuring it out. like. Because um, a can, lot of people, can, startups are like bullshit. Yeah, I, I well, it, it like, is. We're, we're sure. three million dollars. Sure, like, no. Based on what? Well, so I mean, um, a really valuable resource um, is obviously AngelList. So if you go to angel.co/valuations, you can see the market valuations for companies that are in mobile in Toronto, have X number of engineers, have Y number of revenue, and you plug and play that, and you're able to get a ballpark. Um, so we knew the ballpark that we were in. Uh, we actually raised at a valuation that was a little bit lower than that ballpark, just because we're probably in Toronto. Um, and so, you know, that was never really a challenge. Um, valuation, we, we set ourselves a very reasonable valuation expectations. We raised capital. Um, when we tried to raise more capital, the issue was never, your, your, the valuation's mm -hmm. way too high. Mm -hmm. um, it was just, this wasn't a fit for us. So you did one time get a call that seemed okay. Which call was that? Well, your current the company that acquired <laughs> the company yeah. acquired you. Yeah, yeah. How did that process go down? Did you call them? Did they call you? Um, it's funny. I, uh, okay, cool. So um, this is actually the funniest story of all the potential acquirers that we had. Um, so I actually had not heard of the company that acquired us, uh, Velocity, prior to chatting with them. Um, so a little bit of background on Velocity. Um, they're essentially Tab in London, England, in which two really, really smart guys that are ex-iBankers started the same company in, let's say, 30 restaurants in London. And they realized, hey, um, rather than grow this organically, uh, let's raise a, a, an incredible amount of capital and buy the best of the best companies in this space throughout the world and grow and consolidate through acquisition. Um, so they raised $20 million to do just that. Dollars or pounds? Uh, dollars, dollars, American dollars, okay. not Canadian dollars. Okay, big difference um, still. Yeah. Um, and so um, this was around last summer. And so um, I was at work one day and I got a LinkedIn invitation from a guy named Ari Horowitz, who is who has title was EVP of Corp Dev and Strategic Partnerships of this company that I never heard of. Mm -hmm. And so um, I said, sure. Uh, I, was, I, I was just I, thinking about that because I, I get so many of those. And I'm like, I have no idea what yeah. to do with them. So I accepted. Okay. <laughs> and then when you add me on LinkedIn, you can see my email, like my personal email. Mm -hmm. And so immediately thereafter, I got an email from this guy, Ari, who said like, hey, can we talk in an hour? And I said, sure. So we, we were on a call within an hour, wow. and, um, and I said, and at, all the while during this time, we were, pretty in, we were pretty deep in talks with another potential acquiring company. Okay. Uh, we hadn't signed anything. What flavor was that, a Series A? A Series A. Okay, um, and so we hadn't signed anything, but, but I had met the founder, everything was moving. It wasn't moving that quickly, but um, the interest was mutual. 
and um, we were we were pretty deep in talks with them, and so. Ari and I have a phone call. He talks about how awesome he is. He talks about how awesome Velocity is. I never hear this company. And I say, like, sure, like, listen, we're pretty, in, like, I know what your title is, Corp Dev. So for those that are listening that don't know what Corp Dev is, Corp Dev is the team that acquires other companies. Um, I know what your title is. Um, I, I guess this call is to seek out a potential acquisition. Like, we're pretty in deep with talks with another company. Like, um, if you guys are interested, like, we would need to move really, really quickly. And so we said, okay, cool. Here's the 11 to 20 things that we need from you. And uh, we signed an NDA. We sent him all the things. He said, like, within 36 hours later, he said, everything checks out. This is great. Um, our, our founders would like to hop on a call. I hopped on a call with the founders probably 48 hours thereafter. And um, immediately after that, or not immediately after that, but probably four days after that, I found myself on a flight to London to meet the team in London. Mm -hmm. um, met the team in London, we chatted about the vision for the company, we chatted about our strategic fit, we chatted about my role, our team's role, um, and ultimately everything worked out really, really well. And, uh, and about uh, seven to 10 days later, we had uh, an LOI, uh, which is a letter of intent, which is a non-binding agreement that discusses the material items for the acquisition. Um, and we signed the LOI on uh, Labor Day um, of this past year. Mm -hmm. So from initial LinkedIn request to LOI was actually less than two weeks, which is kind insane. of insane. Yeah. And then, and then how long did it take for the deal to close after that? So it took about five weeks. And I can tell you this, that um, from LOI to close uh, was the most stressful five weeks of my life. I probably slept an aggregate of two to three hours. Um, combined for the five weeks, no. Um, it was it was it was just really real. It was a very very tough time in which. Um, so first off, um, one thing that any founder should know is there are no guarantees that just because you sign an LOI, your deal is going to close. Um, there are a thousand reasons why the deal should not close, and probably one to two why it should close. Um, so um, there is just a significant amount of work during that period um, to put yourself, your, your, yourself and your company in the best position forward so that that deal closes. And then moreover, as a founder, there are just so many competing interests going on in this period, team, investors, yourself, um, uh, what you believe is right. Um, there are, uh, it's very, very difficult to manage and juggle. Um, and so it was a very, very difficult time for me personally, but uh, we signed the deal, and uh, we've been really happy ever since. So, a couple questions. Then, one is: Did you, as soon as you, at what point did you did you break up with the other negotiator at the table, the other company that was? Um, it was a pretty quick phone call saying, "Hey, we have an LOI here. It's for X amount. Can you match this, and, or can you match or do better?" And they said no. And that was that. That was it. Why? Why not keep them going until you had a piece of paper signed? A letter of intent, as you said, is non-binding. Yeah. Because um, when you sign a letter of intent, there are two binding provisions, okay. um, confidentiality, the, mm -hmm. and uh, you can't talk to anyone else. I see. Um, so you can't talk to anyone else for typically anywhere from 30 to 60 days. Um, so once you sign that LOI, you're kind of married to that person for that time. And what's the, that's the, that's your risk. Is there a risk for the acquirer? Um, is there a risk in, in the, um, when they, in the, they, in the, they lock you in the exclusivity? Yeah. Um, not not as much right <laughs> not nearly as much of a risk okay 
uh, and then the other question, um, because I would, I'd like to unpack a little bit. I know we have, don't have a huge amount of time, but unpack that period of how the fuck do you figure out what to do? Like, being acquired by somebody, like, there are terms that go along with it. You're not just like, you don't have like a weird sausage maker that you can be like, here's a sausage maker, see you later, I'm retiring to Mexico. You're joining a team. Mm -hmm. So like a couple of weeks to date and then get married, uh, at least at least philosophically, minus the negotiation part, that's not that much time to see, like, do I like these people? Will I hate my life here? Yeah. Um, how did you manage, how did you parse that? Um, you know, our, my time in London was really effective to gauge the vision and culture of the company. Um, and, and you know, those conversations when you fly someone out to a, a city across the pond, it's not, you're not asking what's the score in the J game. Those are very, very, you know, in-depth conversations in which you're seeing um, what is the vision here? What am I going to do? Am I a fit here? And then vice versa, all those same questions on the other end. Um, so sure, uh, those are certainly things that you ask yourself, but I think the most important thing was that the vision of both companies were directly aligned with one another. Um, so, you know, people ask me like, what's going on? Like, you know what, I, I actually do exactly the same thing, except I'm not the founder of the company anymore, right. which is great, um, which is exactly how it should be. Um, if you want that, um, yes. that's exactly how it should be. And, um, and so we're happy with the decision that we made because of the fact that um, the vision of the companies were so directly aligned. The vision of the leadership of Velocity was directly aligned with the leadership of, of Tab. Um, so we're really happy with that. So when you, and then you sign the letter of intent, and I know there's a good and a bad thing about that. On the one hand, it's like you put some stuff down on paper, mm -hmm. uh, and, and since it happens in such a short period of time, it forces you to make decisions quickly, which mm -hmm. is good, because mm -hmm. the longer, whatever. But then, you know, you're like, oh shit, I should have not done this, or I should have done this. You're saying that that period was really stressful. Mm -hmm. Was it because you're like, what what was the hard part? Was it like, I totally agree with everything I said in the letter of intent and I don't want to change anything? And it's about executing that? Were you like, shit, I should have? Well, um, I would say that the, the hard part is that um, deals are, let's say, uh, won or lost or um, the really tricky stuff in deals aren't the big numbers like valuation. It's it's the small things. And the letter of intent does not contemplate a lot of those small things. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was really important for us to get the small things right. For example? Um, empl my employment agreement. Um, so I'm an employee of the company right now. Um, and so, and, it, and when talking about that, um, so I was the founder, I was negotiating with the potential acquirer and you had members of the, the uh, our team um, who had their own employment agreements that needed to be negotiated. And you had our investors that are saying, forget your employment agreement, just get this deal done. Like who cares about your employment right. agreement? Not actually, like obviously everyone wanted a great outcome, but that's kind of what I meant. And there was competing interests. Um, there was also um, the performance of um, our, our markets and performance of our restaurants and performance of our user base was also like, under a microscope during that period of time. So we need to ensure that, you know, the product worked, that people were using it, that restaurants were happy, that X number of dollars were running through to, to in order to, sh to tell, to show this company that we were the company that we told them we were right. prior to the letter of intent. Right. Um, so in addition to quarterbacking the deal, we were also really trying to, um, reignite our operations that had previously been kind of dormant because we had a for sale sign on our back for about three to four months. So before we started the show, you're like, uh, 
that that process is really opaque, the whole mm -hmm. actual M&A mm -hmm. process. What did you learn that you think other people who are about to, are going through that process should should like check, is there like a checklist yeah. of stuff? Well, there is actually it, is a checklist. So anytime that you have a conversation with someone in Corp Dev, you're, you're gonna be asked the same questions. You're gonna be asked size of team, uh, revenue, um, about how much you've raised, uh, what the valuation's been raised at. And so what essentially the person on the other end of that phone call is doing is, is what is the price that I can offer these guys that would be sufficiently low enough that they can they can say yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you say you raised $5 million at a $20 million valuation, then they're gonna be like, shoot, I need to be a lot higher than if I've raised a million dollars in the uh, three to five valuation range, mm -hmm. uh, three to $5 million valuation range. So that's effectively what they're doing. So um, there's a couple things, there, there's a lot of things that I learned, but there's a couple things that are, I think are really important um, for founders is that, um, People are asking you those questions and creating that checklist so that they can come up with a valuation number. Um, it, it, a founder should never uh, should never say the valuation that that they'd sell at, or at least for a founder in the position that we were in, um, they should never say. And that by that I mean early stage, C stage company that was actually seeking out an acquisition rather than the uh, vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, we were uh, selling our company rather than being bought, if you want to look at it that way. Um, you should never say the value, the, what, what you hope your valuation would be. Um, there's no benefit for saying that because if you go really, really low, they're going to be like, sure, we'll get, we'll get you for that. Or if you go really high, then conversations might end. Let the potential acquirer um, set those valuation expectations by the questions that you answer to them. Um, let it be in their court and then go from there. Um, that was one thing that was really important. The other thing is that um, by someone saying we are interested, um, it actually means absolutely nothing if it's not coming from the CEO of the company or the head of corp dev of that company. Okay. So um, of all the companies that we we spoke to, we had a VP of international and a, a VP of product say, we are interested in acquiring you on an email. Mm -hmm. And then as it went up the totem pole, people were kind of like, uh, we're, we're not interested in acquiring you. And you see those messages and you tell your team and you tell your investors and you get so excited by them, um, but you can't and you shouldn't because they're not real. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's really, really tough to temper your expectations when you have a public company say, we are interested in acquiring you or someone at a public company in a seniorish role say, we are interested in acquiring you. Um, that, that was really interesting. And, um, I'm trying to think if there's other like small kernels of wisdom like when, this. When you're going part. through the existential part, yeah, um, which existential the, part? The crisis between the LOI and the actual like signing of the actual yeah. paperwork. Were you? Um, how did you? How how did you get through that? Like, how did you know what to do? Like, did you just yeah. guess, read a book, um, tweet? So I'm. Uh, so I'm a corporate lawyer by background, so I've done a couple deals myself okay. um, from the legal side of things. Mm -hmm. um, our investor um, has uh, experience selling companies as well. Um, so he was quite savvy in that. Um, my father is a private consultant um, and does a lot of M&A, so he was extremely effective. Um, but um, I, so all of those factors certainly helped. Um, but I will say that um, both uh, the two the two folks at Golden Venture Partners were an exceptional resource. Like Matt and Amit, who do not invest in our company mm -hmm. at all, mm -hmm. um, were available for an emergency 30-minute phone call to navigate the M&A process, whether it was during this LOI to close period or whether it be, I'm about to hop on a trip to this place, um, what do we do? 
um, those two guys were extremely effective and are just such awesome people to have here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I was so appreciative of their help. I, I could not say it in, in as many words as possible. Um, so then, uh, we're going to run out of time. Um, so like during that period, what, where, you said there's all these different competing interests. I'm trying to unpack that a little bit because you're like other things you learned. Um, was it about like, um, uh, yeah, what are, were there periods where you're like, ah, oh, shit, we're gonna, the whole thing's going to fall apart because of this one word or this one line? That, mm -hmm. Like, are there common areas that people end up falling down once they've signed the LOI and they're like, oh, well, what do you mean I'm not going to get, like, does the founder get, like, an equity stake or some shares in the, the top co, the acquiring company, and you argue over that? Is it like the your salary is it like boring pedantic stuff like your normal job hire like what how do you um where was the i like i i can't get into the details of our deal no, um but, but um are there common stumbling blocks that you when you talk to all of these people they're like yeah everyone always fucking falls down at the fucking options no that never really be salary the, the, i don't think there was the, necessarily common things okay. um but um we we just found uh we found that in our conversations with with the acquiring company uh with velocity that um you know we weren't we didn't know them that well and they didn't know us that well and once um they opened up the curtains to our company um they saw things that they didn't know and that's not to say that it's bad like not no. that's not to say they saw bad things just you know they uh they they looked at our balance sheet and hadn't seen our balance sheet before. Um, they saw the activity at our restaurants and they uh, began talking to our engineering team and they uh, they spoke to other companies that acquired other companies in Toronto. So once you get in that process, um, there's just such a heavy scrutiny that so many like it's kind of like when you uh, like I don't know I always make things bring things back to sports but it's like kind of when you trade a player and or trade for a player and it's like pending physical and then you go you run them through the physical <laughs> tests and invariably a lot of those trades do go down but like sometimes those trades don't happen and this guy actually has a really terrible back injury um, ultimately we didn't have that metaphorical back injury um, our health was sound but there's a very real possibility that that could be the case right. Uh, okay, in the last, I, we're way over time, but I have to ask you one last question. So you have Tab. Tab was in market. Tab had a couple, like, lots of users. Yeah. Bunch of restaurants. Mm -hmm. Velocity's not unrelated. What do you do with Tab, like, in the Tab customer base? And Yeah, so Tab product still works, and yeah. that's a credit to our amazing engineering and product team that they haven't worked on it in roughly eight months, and the product still works, and people mm -hmm. are still using it, and the money's still moving. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, we're in the midst right now of transitioning from Tab to Velocity, and Velocity will be launching in Canada in the next six to eight weeks. That's really cool. And then, is, do you migrate the users? Do you like ha what do you do with those people who've been customers? Yeah, that's actually a really good question that I don't have the answer to. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a question that I've sent to the engineering team in London, being like, how, how exactly are we going to do this? And so, but Velocity. Philosophically, what are you trying to do with them? You're trying uh, to convert yeah, them over yeah, in so, some way. So let's just thing. say. Um, and, and it's it's in this ballpark. Let's say we have twenty five thousand users. Um, like ultimately, the goal is how do you convert all twenty five thousand of those twenty five thousand users to the new product? And there are a number of ways to skin the cat. And thankfully, um, Velocity actually acquired two other companies around the time that they acquired us, and they've already made that transition. So hopefully, we'll take the obviously the learnings of those ones to. 
um, to tab. Um, but that's the goal is to convert all of our users and to transition all of our restaurants. So we've begun the process of transitioning the restaurants. Um, this is actually like the first time that we've mentioned that Velocity is coming to Toronto <laughs> in the imminent future. So um, you might expect as a tab user to receive emails um, or text messages from Katie letting you know <laughs> that you'll be uh, you will be Velocity soon. But that's something that we're going to work on over the next little bit. That's cool because I think that like sometimes when companies get bought, especially if they're just acquires, you sort of the core product just sort of disappears. Mm -hmm. And the customers who've built trust with the brand and, and whatever, yeah. uh, they just sort of are like, I, they're left out in the lurch. But since I guess the space is the same space and the technology and the, what, what you're trying to do is complementary, mm -hmm. it's, you know, uh, it's not quite so jarring because they're not left out in the lurch. Yeah. yeah, 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 no, totally. Like, like it's not gonna be like, hey, there's all these tab users and all these restaurants, they're saying, hey, we love using your product and then shut down. Right. Um, it's actually quite the contrary in which, um, it, what's going to be, hey, we love using your product and we have this shinier, brighter product that is going to do a lot more things mm -hmm. that um, is going to provide a lot more value to you. Um, so enjoy it because um, it'll be a fun ride. Cool. Well, thank you for coming in this morning. It's sorry it went a little long, but uh, uh, this was Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy. And Adam of Velocity, where, I guess, if people are interested in Velocity, where do they go to take a look at it? Uh, VelocityApp.com is our website, but you can get it in the App Store as well. Just cool. search Velocity. You'll have to scroll down a little bit. Cool. Uh, and then, I guess, in the next couple months, you might be hearing some announcements about some uh, something in Canada. Uh, thanks to the working group TWG for hosting us. Thanks to Nick Kuhn for producing the show. And stay tuned. Next week, we'll be off because we'll be at Collision in New Orleans. But uh, we've got some really cool investor series uh, venture capitalists coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned and thanks for listening.